<laughs> Eric Hunley. How's it going, my friend? Oh, you're in all kinds of trouble now. How are you doing now? <laughs> and we're going to bring in another big friend of the channel for many years who's got billions of views on his To Catch His Predator series, Chris Hansen. Thanks for hey, joining Hey, Sean. Chris. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Good to, good to see you guys both. Good to see you both. Yeah. Good to meet you. Carrying that, carrying that torch of... Um, Going after the people, we, you know, the, the absolute scum out there and exposing what they're doing. Or so, Eric, Eric, we'll start off with you. And what is the latest that you've been doing on your channel? Um, well, I just want to ask Chris. I'm, I'm very interested in modern day because you've been at this for a while. Absolutely. And I fear that the times are changing. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with James O'Keefe. It's not a political question, but he is somebody who is doing traditional undercover journalism, much like 60 Minutes used to do with the briefcase cameras, things like that. Do you find legislation is screwing with you at this point with no, laws not, not what I No, not what I do. I, I think to it, it's a different sort of thing that, that uh, Veritas and, and O'Keefe are doing it and, and I'm not you know taking a position on it because I think there's some value to all investigative work. But but what I have done is while edgy and pushes the envelope, you know, I exist within, you know, fairly traditional bounds of, of journalism. Now clearly to embed with law enforcement or to construct a sting as we have done over the years and continue to do, yes, that um that is very enterprising and it's not something that everyone does, but I have never had anyone tell me you can't do this. I don't feel endangered by any legislation. You know, I, I've always been pro justice. I don't have a political agenda except that there are certain people committing crimes who should be exposed. And my entire goal has been to create awareness and a dialogue that perhaps doesn't it didn't exist before and to to get in the side the mind of a criminal or a predator uh and, and understand how it works and by doing that better prevent people from becoming victims of predators be they sexual predators targeting children or financial predators targeting any other member of society all right viewers wherever you are watching this in the world whether it's youtube facebook if you've got questions for Chris or Eric, please put them in the chat and we'll put them to him. So we're going to have a focus here on Chris. He's got an announcement regarding his Predator series on his network, True Blue. So what is that announcement, Chris? Well, the announcement, Sean, is that for the first time in 20 years of doing these investigations, these sting operations, we actually have an in-depth sit-down interview with one of the Predators I've caught. And this particular case was one that uh, we exposed within the last year involving a 61-year-old doctor named uh, Parminder Jaswal. And Dr. Jaswal, in the course of seeing 18 patients in his family practice in Michigan, uh, engaged in a conversation with a decoy posing as a 15-year-old girl, sent pictures, sexually explicit pictures, and set up a sexual liaison. He showed up at the sting house. He brought with him Oreo cookies and red wine and Coca-Cola. He wanted to experience a fantasy involving uh, the girl's braces, actually, retainer and braces. And as he walked in, he actually touches 
the on-site decoy, who is a youngish-looking sheriff's deputy posing as the 15-year-old girl, on the behind. In the course of my conversation with him, he admits a lot of what he had done. He then feigns a, a heart attack. He said later that it was a, uh, a panic attack, and he's arrested and, and prosecuted. He pleads guilty, and he sits with me. We conducted the interview just about a week ago for a very lengthy interview where he comes clean about his addiction to pornography, how it led to this sexual obsession with finding people online, and how that ultimately led to him engaging with someone he thought was a minor for sex. And his wife sits in the same room and we see them interact at the end of the interview. But it is one of the most eye-opening, compelling, raw, and fascinating interviews of my career. And again, you know, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of these guys in the sting operation itself. But this is the first time someone has actually been bold enough, brave enough to sit down and talk about everything in a very honest way. And he's doing so as a cautionary tale and a warning to other men who are engaging in this behavior. And Sean, we've talked about this many times. You know, I initially, 20 years ago, when we did this sort of an investigation, thought we'd only do it two or three times and guys would be so scared they wouldn't show up. Well, here we are 20 years later and there's more activity than ever before more guys engaging in this, more potential platforms for men to approach children online for sex. So it, it's it's compelling. It's very important. And it'll be on True Blue. Uh, we're going to put the schedule out in the next couple of weeks, but it'll be on very soon. From talking to him, Chris, were you able to analyze what his specific root causes were? Or is it too complex? I think he had uh, an addiction to porn. And I think it, it became all encompassing and it was his with, you know, whether it was alcohol or heroin or whatever your addiction is, he used this to deal with stress and he was able to compartmentalize other areas of his life. He's married has a successful medical practice, adult children who are successes in their own right. And yet here he is in the middle of seeing patients, He's engaging in these conversations and found somebody online on one of these platforms who said she was 15, made it very clear. And he looked right past that, seemed to be enthralled by it. And in fact, you know, came to the sting house, dressed very well, driving a luxury car and walks right in like he owns the place to have this relationship. So I think, you know, one of the issues in society that we've had, Sean, is that, you know, we want to categorize these guys, you know, one way, because then there would be an easy solution to deal with it. But they're different guys. This particular case, Dr. Jaswal, he was a guy who became addicted to porn and the addiction continued and strengthened and had a, a stronghold on him to the point where he would engage in these risky sexual liaisons. And this particular one um, involved an, an underage child. And, you know, he got probation. He pleaded guilty to some of the charges and got probation. Now, if he had been a guy, for instance, where the investigators found child porn on his phone, or if they had found evidence that he had engaged with other underage children, or if he had a criminal record, he would not be getting off without prison time. 
He's got lengthy community service. He's in intensive therapy. He's got a supportive family. And the judge ruled in this case that that would be enough, at least in the beginning, to be punishment for him. But as part of his community service, his outreach to others who may be engaging this behavior involved doing this interview. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a huge journalistic editorial moment for us. And I think it's fascinating. It will be fascinating for the viewers. And I hope that it sends a message to others who may potentially be engaging this predatory behavior so that they don't do it. And if they have an issue, they seek help. You know, I get um, letters from listeners on the podcast, predators I've caught, saying, look, I have this issue. I go to therapy. I battle it. I have never offended and I never will. Thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for doing these investigations. Uh, so I know there are guys out there who are wrestling with this issue. And, and I can't sit here and tell you I understand everything about it. But I have talked to hundreds of these guys, and so I get a sense of, of, of what, what makes them tick. And I think this could be very important uh, from an educational standpoint, certainly from a, a viewer standpoint, because it's fascinating, and hopefully as a deterrent to others who may be thinking about engaging in this behavior. We appreciate that. And I'm going to bring Eric in, but let me just ask the viewers something really quick. Viewers, put a one in the chat if you think that punishment was sufficient. Put a two in the chat if you think that punishment was insufficient, because it seems that the legal system is really lagging in having a deterrent for these monsters. Well, Eric, um, yep, what, what have you got on that? Um, well, a couple things, because there, there are so many layers to the situation. Like, one, you want somebody like him to come forward and express how he got to where he is. And it sounds like the theory may be that he was sort of like David Bowie, Mick Jagger, these rock stars that have so much access to behavior that they get more and more progressively deviant as they go because the old behavior doesn't give them the same kick anymore. Is that kind of what you see happening with him? Like maybe he just started out with a an addiction to, say, vanilla porn, and then it just wasn't satisfying, so it starts to go down and down and down other levels? Yeah, I don't see any any parallel between any particular celebrity, but I think when you talk about a certain level of of uh, satisfaction no longer being sufficient, I think you're absolutely right in terms of this particular specific case. I think, you know, with a lot of these guys, and I think there's some scientific evidence to back this, and if you talk to therapists who are specialized in this area, they will tell you that it's like an addiction. You know, if you tell... Uh, a heroin addict, that there's a 20% chance that that heroin is going to be bad. It's going to be cut with something that's poisonous. They're going to roll the dice because they want the heroin. If you tell somebody who's addicted to this sort of behavior uh, that there's a 20% chance it's going to be Sheriff Chris Swanson or Sheriff Grady Judd or Chris Hansen involved in a sting, they're going to roll the dice because there's an 80% chance they're going to get what they want, feed the addiction and, and be satisfied. So um, yeah, I think that that this the, to those who are addicted to this sort of porn, it continues to grow, and, and and suddenly the porn doesn't do it anymore. They have to go, you know, experience this fantasy in real time, in real life, and and when age appropriate, 
uh, situation no longer works, then they, you know, they keep going and going and fulfill this deeper, you know, more dangerous fantasy. This is a sidetrack, but I'm very into technology. And one thing that has come up of recent times is AI generated mm -hmm. uh, pornography, especially sure. for deviant purposes. Um, there are two levels there. There's one where they put actual faces on it of real people, yeah. which could be seen as a bullying or harassment or among the worst things you could do. Then there's the other question of what about those that are just a generic face? Is this good? Is it evil? I'm curious on your thoughts in terms of an outlet for somebody of that type. Yeah, well, the argument is that if somebody's expressing themselves in a in a deviant way, but with a, an imaginary target, are we preventing a real target or a real victim here? And mm -hmm. I don't pretend to have the answer to that. It makes me anxious because while in some cases, you know, it may work, somebody may fulfill their fantasy in an imaginary world and it doesn't spill over into the real world. There's been too much, there's been too much evidence indicating that, um, especially in these cases, the, the hardcore predator cases, you know, there, there's always, when you dig deeply enough, there's always a link between offending and the viewing of child pornography. Uh, in the vast majority of cases, when when uh, specialists and therapists with the U.S. Marshals Office go into the prisons and they have these deep and intense interviews with offenders in, a, in an environment where the offender gets nothing out of it by making up a story, they, they just they say, we're going to tell the truth. There is always a link between offending and child pornography. So if, if you believe that, which I do then if they're viewing an AI child pornography, at what point does that no longer satisfy them? And uh, do they make that, that jump into actually offending with a child? It, it's, it's unsettling to me. I understand the theory behind it. I think for some people, it may prevent them from acting out. I think at some point, certain people will always act out because they cross this line between fantasy and reality and they need the real life experience. That's an interesting point, Eric, and it is unsettling because we've spoke to sex workers in interviews and some have said when clients have raised role play of that nature, they've kicked them out. Others have said when clients have raised role play of that nature, they've pursued it because they feel that it's prevented that person from going out and doing that to a child. And it may have in that instance, but what happens the next time, the next time, and the next time? You know, that would be my question. So, Chris, do you think that the addiction gets so big that it actually splits the personality of that doctor, for example, that you just described? I think it can. And I think they become very good. People who are highly educated who have you know, financial means tend to be very good at compartmentalizing. And so they have this workaday uh, behavior where they see, as in the case of this particular day where Dr. Jaswell was arrested, caught in the sting, he saw 18 patients. And probably none of those patients had any inkling that he was sneaking off to have, you know, the sexually charged chat, taking pictures of his genitals and sending them to somebody who identified themselves as a 15-year-old girl. Yes, he's he just went on through his day. But it's alarming, and especially, you know, this happened in Michigan. So we had the incident at Michigan State University where you know, Dr. Larry Nasser was treating gymnasts and sexually assault him. So it raises all kinds of concerns. If a guy is acting this way in his 
personal life. What is he doing in his professional life? In the case of Dr. Joswell, there was absolutely no indication that he was he was violating any of his, uh, you know, Hippocratic oaths or, or violating any laws or treating any patient in, inappropriately. There was none of that. But when the case first uh, surfaced, of course, that was the concern. And they did a very deep dive into his background and, and, and into any complaints, which there weren't any at the, at, the, uh, at the state level. And so that's why he was able to you know, get involved in this particular plea arrangement. Is he still practicing? He is not practicing. He sold his practice. And uh, by statute, he's going to have to surrender his medical license to the state. Okay. Well, I mean, that would be, I'm sorry, a, a definite concern whether oh, or yeah. not. No, you're uh, absolutely right, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. Eric, don't you think that the justice system should take this stuff more seriously and these people should get much longer sentences and that would be a deterrent? Um, ideally, I, I feel like there's such a, a mixed bag with it in, in terms of how do you deal with it? Like in the States, I think we have different laws and they have in Germany. Like a big question is, I don't, and hopefully Chris can address this, are these people are deviants. They have they have a, a giant problem, the, and from what I understand, it may not be curable. But is there an outlet for them to get help before they offend, or are there too many legal mechanisms in place that cause them to be reported the second they go to get help, and then they are afraid to um, co come forward, and then they actually commit the crime? Well, there, there's, a, there's a big there's a big stigma, Eric, obviously. And I think that keeps some people away from from uh, from from getting help. I don't think there is necessarily a legal requirement uh, that somebody is reported as long as they haven't committed a crime. You know, if they victimize a child and then they say, I've got this problem and I've already committed a crime, then I think there's some duty to report that. And I think that's appropriate. Sure. But I think if somebody is thinking about offending or thinking that they're worried about controlling their urges and they seek help from a therapist, um, that that therapy session is between the person who seeks the therapy and the person giving the therapy, you know, by by law. And and so that is is an area that's you know, respected and, and, and protected in, in, you know, in, in the United States at least. But to, to your larger point and to, to the thing that concerns me is that here in this country, we want easy answers to these questions. We want to say, okay, this guy is a pedophile or a predator. He, he has to be incarcerated mm -hmm. for life. Or we want the treatment program that works every time. But it's not that simple. Each one of these guys is different, and each one theoretically requires a different protocol, whether it's punishment. Some guys need to go away forever. Some guys can be wrapped on the nose and given probation and, and give their community service, and they won't offend again. And some guys are in this gray area that's very difficult to monitor. And so we depend on parole and probation officers to monitor these situations. We depend on our registered sex offender lists to um, see where these guys are and, and to make them report and be held accountable. And, I, I, and I, I don't think there is enough therapy out there to, to deal with all the, the people who have issues. And one of the things I've always wanted to do was, you know, be allowed into a therapy session with some of these guys and to yeah. just live it and, and to show it in real time on television. It's something that we've been working on for a long time. And to be honest with you, we haven't, figured out a way to do it, or we certainly haven't gotten the permissions to do it. But I think it would be fascinating. And I think anything that sparks a conversation 
between parents and children is positive. I read something the other day where the average parent spends 46 minutes or 43 minutes with their children in their entire lifetime talking about internet safety. And it's not just adults, you know, wanting to hook up with kids for sex. It's this whole issue of sextortion. It's, you know, con artists from half a world away in Eastern Europe and Western Africa, tricking kids into sending uh, pictures and then extorting money out of them. You know, and these kids are committing suicide due to the embarrassment of it all. And we've got another huge documentary coming out that we're producing a true blue on that to, to create awareness. But, you know, if you're not having this discussion with your kids at home, then, you, then you're, you're, you're creating a dangerous environment. And it's got to be a continuing discussion that starts at the very age where these kids get on the Internet. And it's got to continue. On that note, um, I've interviewed Ken Lanning. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yeah, I know with him very well. Interviewed okay. him many times. Um, his recommendation that really stuck with me in terms of parents is that they have to make it a safe environment for mm -hmm. their kids to tell them anything. Like That's the kids right. have to feel like no matter what you tell me, maybe you'll get in trouble later. I'm never going to judge you. Yep. I'm always here for you. Just come to me, no matter how dumb, how silly, how weird it is. You're exactly please right. Please come to me. And Ken Lanning is absolutely right. And we saw that uh, in the sextortion piece that we're putting together. I interviewed four parents uh, of four young men, each of whom were good students, good athletes. I had promising futures, each of whom committed suicide because they became frantic one night uh, after uh, somebody in Nigeria convinced them to send a sexually suggestive picture, uh, you know, tricking them into thinking they were sending it to a, a girl, an age appropriate girl. And they did it. And, and they, you know, in some cases, they get $100 or $50 out of these kids. And when the money's over, they don't care if they commit suicide. And finally, in this particular case, one of the cases we profile was in northern Michigan in Marquette. And the local sheriff's department, the Marquette County Sheriff's Department, and the FBI was able to make a case uh, in Nigeria and actually extradite these, these killers. And that's what they are. They're killers. Oh, yeah. Um, to the United States to face criminal charges here. So for the first time ever. And we interview everybody involved in that case. It was quite something. But yeah, I mean, how, how much would those parents, any of them, wish that the kids came to them and said, you know, I was stupid. I was a knucklehead. I, uh, I sent a picture of myself from the waist down naked to somebody I thought was a girl and it turned out to be somebody who, you know, and then I sent them, you know, a Starbucks card or $50 from some other, you know, gaming card or Target card. You know, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and the parents would have laughed it off and in a week it would have been a non-event. Instead, we've got people finding their family gun, shooting themselves in the head or hanging themselves in the backyard. Horrific tragedies that are wholly unnecessary. Oh, that's absolutely heartbreaking, Chris. I can't yeah. believe what I'm hearing. That's, I mean, it's, it's, oh it's, it's become a, a cause for me because it, it is unnecessary, you know, to have one of these kids take their own lives. And, and in each case, these weren't risky, troubled kids. You know, one was the this the son of a state representative in South Carolina. The other, you know, successful people in northern Michigan, a, you know, a wonderful family in Ohio, uh, San Jose, a, a woman who had a wonderful relationship with her son. I mean, just just and they know how to push the buttons and all of this for 50 or 100 bucks. But they do it so many times they get so much money. And for years, 
they got away with it because nobody had the wherewithal to go to Lagos to one of these, you know, internet cafes and grab some of these people and bring them back to the United States to face justice. And finally, that's happening. Thank God. Yeah, I do life lessons talks in schools and I've incorporated sextortion in recent years. So I hope that uh, resonates. Yeah. All right. So so my next question is, um, I interviewed a doctor and she was working with counseling a man who thought about doing the things you mentioned before, but didn't act out on it. And Mm -hmm. she took him on the documentary and I watched it. And what he said on the documentary, he had a wife, he had kids of his own. And what he said was, I am doing this because you, the society needs to understand our mindset because if they don't, if you, all you want to do is lynch us, you're never going to be able to adequately address the problem. So what are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, I think, I think there's, there's a, a, a element of truth to it. And again, it goes back to what I was saying about the letters and, and the reaction I get from listeners to the podcast who, who have said the very same thing. And I understand their reluctance to actually sit down and do an interview with me, uh, even if they have never acted out on these impulses. But I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex issue, and you're not going to be able to lock everybody up. And we as a society have to figure out who's got to be locked up, who can have community service, who can get treatment, and who cannot. And, you know, I can t- tell you that I think there are three categories of these guys, but it's much more complex than that. And so as a society, you know, as a uh, society of, of, of doctors and therapists, they, I can tell you that, that there aren't enough of these people out there. It's not a glorious practice of medicine. You, you go $250,000 in debt here in the United States to, to become a doctor and you can you know, work a couple blocks from here on Park Avenue doing plastic surgery, or you can go into, you know, federal prisons and talk to sex offenders, which are you going to pick? I mean, it's, it's not pleasant. It's important. It's critical, but there's not enough on it there. I can tell you that. Do they suffer from guilt by association as well? Because I could see some doctors being like, I don't even want to be known as somebody who even talks to them. They're so, it's so loaded, so much judgment on it that well, I, I, I think that's transfer. I think that's possible, but I, I think the, the the men and women I've known who engage in this sort of work, and, and ironically, some of the therapists are you know husband and wife teams. They live for this because they see success, and when they they get a patient who's fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old, who is you know has proclivities like this, they can get they can they can change that kid's life. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I've seen it and there are a lot of success stories out there. But the problem is once somebody gets too far down the road, you know, and they offend, then, you know, there needs to be some other punishment besides um, besides therapy in many cases. What, what do you think is the best way forward, Eric? Uh, well, one, I, I like what Chris said, that there's different levels. And I, I think that we have a problem where sometimes really bad offenders get out too early. And I don't believe they should. At the same time, and I know people bring up this all the time, but a 21-year-old with a 14-year-old is not the same as some of the other offenders, so to speak. And when everybody wears the same label, I think it becomes muddy again. I think it should be very clear what somebody did or didn't do and, and what level they are, and especially if they are, uh, you know, a real um, 
hardcore offender, they've got to go away. I mean, they, they, I don't know, um, you know, what is the recidivism rate? It's, it's got to be astronomical from what I understand. Well, yeah, it, it, it's high. I don't have this specific number in, in front of me to quote you, and I think it breaks down in different categories for different offenses. But, but you, you're right. I mean, we've seen guys in our investigations who, you know, for whom it's their third time getting caught, and those guys should never see the light of day because they've proved to society that they can't be rehabilitated. If you are talking about a 21-year-old with a 14-year-old, that's a, a different story. I would suggest to you that there's no difference in the level of danger a 21-year-old poses to a 14-year-old than what a 48-year-old poses to a 14-year-old. Uh, you know, that's a big seven years when you're talking about 14 to 21. I don't see that as Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and I know some people disagree with me, but, you know, the damage gets caused. Now, the, the, the issue is, can the 21-year-old be rehabilitated and, and monitored and, and not offend again? And I think in a lot of cases, the answer is yes, because of his age. So the danger caused to the child remains the same, right? Mm -hmm. Because she is or he is only 14 years old and can't process the information, which is why we have a, you know, a statute there to, to, to set a minimum age for consent. But on the other end, the rehabilitation for the offender, yes, you have a much better chance to uh, deal with a 20, 21, 22, 23-year-old than if you have somebody who is uh, you know, in their 40s, obviously. We've run out of time, guys. Huge thank you for joining us this evening. It's such important work. And I'll start with Chris. Can you tell the viewers where they can find you and support you, please? Absolutely. My streaming crime network, True Blue, T-R-U-B-L-U. Watch TrueBlue.com for details. Uh, that's the streaming network. We're also on Roku, Channel 529, podcast, Predators Uncaught. Awesome. And Eric. Just Eric Hundley. You can find me on YouTube, everywhere else, or America's Untold Stories. All of Chris and Eric's links are in the description box below this video. So please support their work and hope to see you guys soon. Thank you. Cheers. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.